The committee investigating the January 6th attack has been presenting its case against former President Trump. The Department of Justice is watching closely. At this point, this investigation is proceeding according to facts and the law. We are not obstructed uh, from continuing our investigation in any way. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. What the Justice Department is watching for coming up. We'll hear from a Cambridge-based doctor who's been traveling to Jackson, Mississippi every month for the past five years to provide abortion services at the clinic that's at the core of the abortion rights case before the Supreme Court. How the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers is gearing up for the potential criminalization of abortion. Georgia U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock talks about how he proved himself wrong by winning a Georgia Senate seat as a black Democrat. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up next. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The top Republican in the U.S. Senate, Mitch McConnell, is endorsing a framework for gun safety measures resulting from bipartisan negotiations. I think if this framework becomes the actual piece of legislation, it's a step forward a step forward on a bipartisan basis. The gun safety legislation prompted by outrage over repeated mass shootings across the U.S. is still being written. It would expand background checks on gun sales. It would also support states with red flag laws. The next public hearing on what a House Select Committee found out about former President Donald Trump's actions in the lead-up to and the day of the riot at the U.S. Capitol last year is not until Thursday. Tomorrow's hearing was abruptly postponed, as NPR's Windsor Johnston reports. The committee didn't offer an explanation for the delay, but a source familiar with the decision said it was a result of scheduling conflicts. Lawmakers were set to hear testimony from former acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, who took over the Justice Department after William Barr resigned. Two other former DOJ officials were also scheduled to testify. NPR's Windsor Johnston. President Biden addressed inflation concerns in a speech at AFL-CIO Labor Union Convention in Philadelphia. As NPR's Tamara Keith tells us, he made a pitch for electing Democrats in the upcoming congressional midterm elections. Speaking to a friendly crowd, an energized Biden sought to draw contrast between his party and Republicans attempting to win control of the House and Senate. And while the job market is much improved, he acknowledged high costs for gas and food are, quote, sapping the strength of a lot of families. And he admitted that his agenda has been stymied in Congress. Problem is, Republicans in Congress are doing everything they can to stop my plans to bring down costs on ordinary families. That's why my plan is not finished and why the results aren't finished either. Though Biden hasn't been able to get total Democratic support for his legislative proposals either. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny serving out a prison sentence, but his allies say they don't know where. Here's NPR's Charles Maines. Navalny's lawyer arrived for a scheduled visit with the opposition leader, only to be told by prison officials he was no longer at the jail. Later, the lawyer said she'd been informed Navalny had been transferred to a maximum security prison, although Navalny's exact whereabouts remain disputed and supporters have expressed concern over safety. Prison transfers in Russia can take days or even weeks and are often carried out in secrecy. Last March, March, a Russian court sentenced Navalny to nine years in harsher prison conditions following a fraud conviction the opposition figure said was politically motivated. Navalny supporters say authorities are also preparing new additional extremism charges against him that could extend his time in prison by another 15 years. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has thrown out a ballot question that would have asked voters to keep rideshare drivers classified as independent contractors rather than as employees. The effort was proposed by some big tech companies. WBUR's Yasmeen Ammer reports the court called the question vaguely worded. Beth Griffith is the executive director of the Boston Independent Drivers Guild. Her group is part of a coalition trying to unionize rideshare drivers. She's relieved the court throughout the ballot question. We won the battle, but we still have the war to fight. We are organizing workers, organizing drivers. You know, we're not giving these companies a chance to try to come back in a year or two and try to pull this garbage, this baloney again. Drivers who oppose the ballot initiative say companies like Uber and Lyft have been gradually cutting their pay. But the companies say the only way they can provide flexible schedules is to keep workers classified as contractors. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. A search is underway for a missing three-year-old in Lowell. Police believe the boy, identified as Harry, wandered away from a babysitter's home in the Pawtucketville section of the city this morning. The neighborhood borders a state forest on one side and the Merrimack River on the other. State police dive teams have been searching ponds and wetlands in the area. Aircraft and crews on the ground are also searching for the boy. Again, that's in Lowell. The city of Boston has named its first-ever chief behavioral health officer. Dr. Kevin Simon will lead city initiatives aimed at improving mental health care access, especially for young people in Boston. Mental health has become a nationwide concern, more so since the pandemic. Simon currently serves as an assistant in psychiatry at Boston Children's Hospital. 78 degrees now in the Boston area. Another clear moonlit night ahead tonight. Lows about 60. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine. Highs about 74 degrees, so a little cooler than today. Thursday should reach closer to 80 degrees with sunshine. Just a slight chance of an afternoon shower. Then turning hot on Friday, up around 90. 78 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington, where the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is building a strong political case against former President Donald Trump. But Chairman Benny Thompson says he'll leave the legal case to the prosecutors. Well, I prefer that we complete our work and share that work with the Department of Justice, and they will make that call after that. Let's talk about where that Justice Department probe stands with NPR National Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. All right. The Justice Department is led by Attorney General Merrick Garland. What has he said? What's he saying lately about the former president? Merrick Garland told reporters this week he's watching these hearings closely, and so are the prosecutors leading the more than 800 criminal cases on the docket. Of course, most of those cases are against the rioters who broke into the Capitol and assaulted police officers and reporters. But federal grand juries are looking at the organizers and funders of political rallies, and they're asking questions about the fake slates of electors. That's all part of a plan to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Here's what the Attorney General General says about that. 
We are proceeding with full urgency with respect, uh, as I've said many times before, to hold all perpetrators who are criminally responsible for January 6th accountable, regardless of their level, their position, and regardless of whether they were present at the events of January 6th. So, Kerry, it doesn't sound like he's putting any limits on who the investigation might reach. And he says they're acting with all urgency, but it's been a year and a half since the attack. What is taking so long? There's been a lot of pressure on this Justice Department about the pace of the investigation, but that seems to reflect a sort of misunderstanding about how prosecutors are thinking about it. It's the biggest and most complex investigation in DOJ history. Leaders at this department have made a choice to start at the ground level and see where the evidence goes from there. The Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco explained this idea recently at the University of Chicago. We look at and investigate the crimes in front of us, uh, and then we work our way up. We follow the facts, we follow the evidence, we follow the money, and have our investigation go out from there. And it's very important to do that in a methodical way. Monaco says prosecutors are letting the facts guide them. They're investigating conduct and not people or political viewpoints. It's impossible not to acknowledge that a prosecution of a former president would be huge. And the legal community has been debating this a lot. What are you hearing from your sources about what this would mean? Oh, these these congressional hearings have been must-watch for a lot of my sources uh, and must-watch for the Justice Department, too. We don't know exactly what evidence prosecutors have gathered or what defenses there might be for former President Trump and his inner circle at this stage. And, of course, the standard for proving a criminal case in court beyond a reasonable doubt is a lot higher than presenting information to the public in a televised hearing. But former prosecutor Christy Parker says she thinks there's a real criminal case to to be made. The actions the former president and some of his close associates undertook to overturn the result of the 2020 election are also very likely to be violations of multiple federal and state laws. Christy Parker says obstruction, conspiracy, and even seditious conspiracy could be on the table here. All right. Well, before you go, what else is coming up in the January 6th investigation this week? It's going to be busy, Ari. We've got hearings at the federal courthouse later this week for both Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro. They're former Trump advisors who face criminal charges for contempt of Congress for not cooperating with the January 6th committee. And the House Select Committee has postponed tomorrow's hearing with former Trump Justice Department officials. We expect that to be rescheduled not too long from now. We're going to be watching there as they testify about uh, former President Trump and his efforts to pressure them and perhaps even replace them with a more favorable uh, member of the Justice Department in order to uh, help overturn the election in 2020. That is NPR National Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. The first minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, has added to the political challenges facing Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister. She announced today that her relatively autonomous government in Scotland would pursue a second referendum on full Scottish independence. That's even though Johnson has repeatedly said now is not the time to discuss such a potentially significant split in a kingdom that's remained united for more than three centuries. Villa Marks has the details from London. Ever since 2014, when Scots last had the chance to choose independence and rejected it, the Scottish National Party of Nicola Sturgeon has sought support for a rerun. After retaining control of Scotland's devolved government earlier this year, Sturgeon claimed a mandate to demand a fresh vote on her country's future. And at a moment of political peril for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson down in Westminster, she made her move today. 
This is a UK government that has no respect for democracy. It has no regard for the rule of law either. That means if we are to uphold democracy here in Scotland, we must forge a way forward, if necessary, without a Section 30 order. A Section 30 order is the approval whereby the Parliament in London can grant temporary powers to the Parliament in Edinburgh to hold this kind of vote. Since taking office, Johnson has declined to offer this option. But these days he's got several other problems, including accusations that his government is breaching international law with its plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda and for a proposal to override parts of Britain's Brexit deal with Europe, not to mention his own criminal involvement in social gatherings at Downing Street during COVID-19 lockdowns that earned its own political label, Partygate. At the same time, Johnson's now picking a fight with Europe over Northern Ireland's trade status. His government wants to override parts of the 2019 Brexit deal with the European Union that it doesn't like. His foreign minister, Liz Truss, says the consequences of inaction would be serious. There are very real problems that we're facing in Northern Ireland. First of all, on trade, we're seeing trade diverted from east, west to north, south. The people of Northern Ireland are not able to benefit from the same tax benefits as people in Great Britain. And that is causing a feeling of inequality between the different communities of Northern Ireland. Sam Lowe is the Director of Trade Policy at business consultancy Flint Global and says when it comes to Europe, UK leaders have in recent years not always acted in good faith. What's unusual here is for a country to enter willingly into an agreement and then immediately pretty much say, actually, we don't like the agreement we've just entered into. And rather than resolving that through the formal mechanisms, we will just act unilaterally to change the facts on the ground. Johnson himself disputes his government is doing anything wrong. But his political opponents in Northern Ireland say the plan to change domestic law while ignoring an international treaty is unacceptable. Michelle O'Neill heads Northern Ireland's largest political party, Sinn Féin. Today's action by Boris Johnson in Westminster is absolutely reckless. It's disgraceful. It does nothing to serve the interests of the people here. It flies in the face of an international agreement which he himself negotiated. Johnson narrowly survived a vote of no confidence last week, reinforcing his reputation as a political survivor. It's unclear if that will be enough to steer him through these current crises, some of his own making. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marks in London. My unsung hero from the team at Hidden Brain tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression. Today's story comes from the poet Joy Layden. I have had a slowly disabling illness for many years, and in the past year, it's intensified to the point that I've made a list of things that I want to do while I'm still able to do them. And on that list is recording a reading of one of my books of poetry called The Book of Anna. And uh, it was almost too much for me to find somebody, but I found a woman who said, you can come out to my studio and we'll do a recording of this. And I explained about being ill and she said, okay, I will drive to you. And I explained about being on disability, and she said, okay, I won't charge you for the transportation time, which was about five hours round trip. I'll just come out and we'll just do the recording. And I explained that I would need to be lying down in bed while I did this. And she said, that's okay. I will 
sit on the bed beside you and hold the microphone over you so that you don't have to sit up. And that's what she did. She drove out one summer day and for a total of about six hours, she sat on my bed leaning over, holding the microphone so that I could make this recording. Afterward, I learned that her father was in the process of dying and that he was the inspiration for her to extend herself in this way, that she felt like that was the way that she was going to honor his life. Her example of responding to my need and my disability and my sense that this was important for me to get done by extending herself in so many ways, including giving up some of her precious time with her father, that makes her one of my unsung heroes. Unlike many of the people featured in this series, Joy Layden actually knows the name of her unsung hero. It's Debbie Bleacher, an audio producer based in Sudbury, Massachusetts. And Layden hopes to have that audio version of The Book of Anna completed by this fall. My Unsung Hero is also a podcast. You can find new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. To share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and send it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. On Wall Street, a slide today for the Dow and the S&P. Not as bad as yesterday's, though. The Dow lost a half percent, 152 points, to close at 30,365. S&P fell for a fifth day, down 0.38 percent, to close at 3735. The Nasdaq picked up 0.18 percent, to close at 10,828. It's 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org. And BU School of Social Work, offering a top-ranked MSW part-time program in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. Visit bu.edu ssw. A glassmaker in the town of Easton plans to lay off dozens of workers. Solar Seal has filed a notice with the state. It'll cut jobs by uh, 72 jobs by early August. The Boston Business Journal reports the cuts are in part the result of rising costs, staffing challenges, and supply chain problems. The company has not yet responded to WBUR for a request for further details. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, working to align investments with values like economic justice, human rights, and climate action. Zevin.com slash WBUR. And Backbay Life Science Advisors, data-driven strategy and investment banking services for global life science companies. BBLSA.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR.
Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Should have clear skies tonight, down around 60 degrees. Tomorrow and Thursday, lots of sunshine. Highs only about 74 tomorrow, then 78 on Thursday. Friday could head for 90 degrees. Don't forget to check out the June supermoon tonight. It rises at 9.09 and reaches a peak of about 23 degrees above the horizon. During supermoons, the moon appears especially large because of a close approach to Earth. Those come in clusters, the supermoons do, so you get to see two more, one in July and another in August. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. Designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from Fisher Investments Wealth Management, offering guidance on retirement income, social security, and estate planning. More at fisherinvestments.com. Clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to announce soon its ruling in a case that could overturn Roe v. Wade, the law that legalized abortion. Such a ruling would trigger laws that ban abortions in 13 states. One of those states is Mississippi. The case before the Supreme Court is centered around the only clinic in that state that provides abortions. It's in the capital, Jackson. No Mississippi doctors work there. They say the stigma keeps them from getting hired anywhere else. And that's where doctors like Cheryl Hamlin come in. She's an obstetrician gynecologist who practices at Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge and a community women's clinics. Every month, Dr. Hamlin flies down to Jackson for a few days to perform abortions. She's been doing this for five years now. It started out really just right after the 2016 election that I felt like I needed to do more than I was doing to improve access to abortion care. I felt like I needed to know what was happening in Mississippi or a red state, and Mississippi was the one I went to. Um, And I think that, you know, the longer I'm there, the more, you know, I see the need, and obviously things have gotten worse. There have been multiple laws passed since I've been working there. Most of them have been overturned, and now we've got this one. And who pays for your travel there? The clinic does pay for it. The clinic itself to continue providing the service. And what is it like when you get there? Do you have to go in undercover? Are there protesters outside? There are protesters outside the clinic, for sure. I've never felt threatened, so it's not like I'm sneaking in, but I definitely go in the back door, not the front door. And, you know, they generally say horrible things to me, but worse than that is they say really horrible things to the women walking into the clinic. The women who who go there, can you tell us about them? You know, it's the whole range that you would expect. I mean, I think that Mississippi and Jackson in particular has a higher percentage of African Americans than any other state, and that's definitely reflected in the clientele. Um, I would say most of the women probably average on the poorer side, but that doesn't mean we don't get professionals. We certainly do get nurses, doctors, lawyers, teachers, young, you know, old, no kids, lots of kids. I mean, we get the whole range. If you look back on the women that you have provided services for, are there any that stay with you, any stories that stay with you? 
gosh, there's so many. You know, I think one of the themes, perhaps, is a religious one, since that's what people are claiming is the reason we should ban abortions. And, you know, people saying, oh, they need to find Jesus, or you need to find Jesus. I mean, a lot of the women there, they found Jesus. There, It's not a lack of religion. And I've had things from, like, I just want my baby to go meet Jesus, you know, right now, rather than suffering through the life I have to offer him. Or in one case, we were sort of negotiating how we were going to get her in. And when I came back and said, all right, all right, we can get you in tomorrow. And she said, oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray that he would speak in your ear and help me. Mm. You know, so that's their religion. And who are the other people to place their religious, you know, judgment on them? So you said one of your motivations in going to Mississippi was to find out what things were like in a red state to try and understand what people who think in a different way, possibly, what their views are. So let me ask you that in regards to people who you are serving, you're providing abortions for, and then people who don't want abortion to be legal, who are on the other side. Maybe you've talked to them, maybe you haven't. Tell us first about your patients. You know, one of the things that struck me early on was, you know, comparing it to Massachusetts, was the difference in, you know, health care options in general. Mississippi has one of the highest uninsured rates, and Massachusetts having one of the lowest ones. So the, the difference was fairly stark that women actually didn't get birth control because they couldn't afford it, not so much because it wasn't accessible. You know, and a lot of them... haven't really seen a doctor other than, you know, I'm like the first doctor they've seen in a while. Um, Hmm. And so, you know, I do talk to them about their blood pressure. You know, your your blood pressure is a lot higher than it should be. You know, have you seen somebody for that? Or, you know, they'll tell me about, you know, just some advice they've been given that just seems a little backwards to me. And I'll try to talk with them through that. Can I ask you what? Several women have said that they requested a tubal ligation or something permanent and were told no, that they're too young, they don't have enough kids. And what's behind that? I mean, that's that's not a matter of lack of insurance. What do you think is, is going on there? I don't know if I know. It could either be a lack of taking the time to understand what the woman really needs, which we all know contributes to some of the healthcare disparities, you know, that poor and women of color often aren't listened to as well. I think I have no doubt that's part of it. Um, Some of it just may be that they're so desperate for doctors that, you know, they may not have a lot of time for education or maybe they're not the most well-trained. And what about the people who you would consider real red staters, the people who you're kind of trying to get your head around? Have you spoken with anyone who can kind of help you understand where they're coming from? Well, what's interesting to me, actually, is that I haven't always been shy in saying what I've been there for, and I'm surprised about the amount of support I get. The worst has been neutral, like, eh, you know, that's fine, but uh, I think women abuse it or whatever. I mean, that was like the worst comment I've gotten. But I've gotten some like, wow, good for you. You know, I'm, you know, I'm so glad that you do that you know, more than you would expect, I guess. Um, So the only really outspoken people really are the protesters in front of the building. And when I started going, I I did try to engage with them, but you you really can't. Um, I've talked to them about, well, why doesn't Mississippi expand Medicaid? You know, more women would have insurance. And, 
use birth control and, you know, maybe feel more comfortable continuing a pregnancy if they if they weren't worried about insurance and like, well, that's not going to make any difference. You know, I mean, it, it, nothing I say has made a difference. If you can't go back, where will your activism go then? Are you going to try to find places where these women can go if they need and want an abortion outside of Mississippi, elsewhere? Well, it's going to have to be multi-front fronts. Um, the owner and staff at Jackson Women's Health are opening a clinic in New Mexico, and I'm working on my New Mexico license, and it's right on the border of Texas, so it will be convenient to Texas. Um, you know, I'm hoping that my connections here um, will help whatever women that this would be the easier step that they can come here. You know, it's going to be some fundraising and kind of creative how to get people where they need to be, you know, to the extent that it's legal for both me and the woman wanting it, um, getting pills to them or, you know, whatever it takes. It's going to take a lot of creativity and multiple fronts. And then, you know, the real answer is we need the political will to change things. You know, we haven't succeeded until that happens. Dr. Cheryl Hamlin, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Cheryl Hamlin is an obstetrician gynecologist based in the Boston area who's been providing abortions in Jackson, Mississippi every month since 2017. Coming up on WBUR, how legal activists are preparing for the potential criminalization of abortion. In the forecast, another stunning day today with sunshine ahead for tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Gore Place and live music outdoors in the spacious Century Tent, featuring traditional and folk music. Wednesdays in June and July in Waltham, goreplace.org. And Landmark College, for students who learn differently with online dual enrollment courses where high school students earn college credits. More at landmark.edu slash online. Well, here's something that's questionable. Even if I get my own patents, that does not protect me against lawsuits by others. I'm Kimberly Adams. Patent problems, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Philadelphia today, President Biden told the largest federation of labor unions that he's rebuilding the U.S. economy around workers. Biden is trying to draw a distinct contrast between his efforts and those of Republicans who have increasingly attracted more blue-collar votes in the state. The problem is, Republicans in Congress are doing everything they can to stop my plans to bring down costs on ordinary families. That's why my plan is not finished and why the results aren't finished either. His speech at the AFL-CIO convention was an attempt to reset the ongoing debate over the economy. Biden's approval rating has dropped as consumer prices and the cost of the gas pump continues to soar. Biden says the GOP is more focused on cutting taxes for companies and the wealthy than helping the working class. The World Health Organization says it will meet next week to determine whether the monkeypox outbreak is a public health emergency of international concern. 
Here's NPR's Ari Daniel. Since the beginning of the year, the number of monkeypox cases has swelled to more than 1,600, with another almost 1,500 suspected cases across 39 countries. Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus is WHO Director General. The global outbreak of monkeypox is clearly unusual and concerning. The virus's expanding geographic footprint, combined with its atypical behavior, has prompted the WHO to convene its emergency committee next week before the situation escalates further. In the meantime, the global health body advises reducing transmission through surveillance, contact tracing, and isolating infected individuals. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Stocks finished slightly lower on Wall Street, narrowing some of yesterday's losses. The Dow down half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has thrown out a ballot question that would have asked voters in November to keep rideshare drivers classified as independent contractors. The question also could have limited companies like Uber and Lyft from some legal liability for accidents and injuries. The court ruled the question is unconstitutional because it asks voters to consider more than one policy matter. Some drivers want rideshare companies to consider them as employees, not independent contractors. Ihab Halili is currently uh, says currently companies make, can make dramatic changes to working conditions without due process. We want them to respect us. We, we want protect. We want them to be protected as a driver. So respect, protect, and well pay. We want our, mini, our wages to go up, not down. Several app-based rideshare companies backed the ballot measure. Supporters say drivers will maintain greater flexibility in the hours they work if they're classified as independent contractors. The FBI, as well as the U.S. Marshals and Manchester, New Hampshire police, were at the former home of Harmony Montgomery today. The girl has been missing since 2019 when she was five years old. The New Hampshire Attorney General will only say the Manchester home where the girl lived with her father and stepmother was the focus of a search. Both are facing charges, but neither is accused in the child's disappearance. The number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 in the state is falling. The latest state data show there are 550 patients in the hospital with the virus. That's about 200 fewer than a month ago, and just a fraction of the number during the winter Omicron surge. It's 77 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to helping improve the lives of people with sickle cell disease. Now hiring for cell and genetics therapies teams. More at vrtx.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. A beautiful day leads us to a clear night tonight, falling to about 60. Tomorrow should be just as sunny, a good deal cooler in the mid-70s tops. Thursday should bring back the sunshine, the off chance of afternoon showers, windy and a bit warmer, about 78 degrees. 77 degrees now in Boston. for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. If, as expected, Roe v. Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court, people who have abortions could end up facing criminal charges. So could doctors who perform abortions. So could Uber drivers who take passengers to appointments for abortions. So criminal defense attorneys all over the country are gearing up for a wave of these courtroom fights. We wanted to know how they're preparing for that. So with us is Lisa Wayne, Executive Director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Lisa, thanks for coming on the program. Of course. Lisa, your organization is very large. It has many members who certainly have different opinions about whether abortion is right or wrong. So you do not take a political stance on this. But what is the legal concern here from your organization's perspective? Well, our legal concern is to make sure that we are sounding an alarm bell about the wave of expansive prosecutions, that we are certain will follow any significant curtailment or reversal of Roe versus Wade. So we know that existing state conspiracy laws attempt aiding and abetting accomplice liability subjects a wide range of individuals beyond just women who are seeking abortions. We're talking about the doctors performing them, the friends, the parents, the boyfriends. All of those people will be exposed to criminal penalties, which opens up the floodgates to overcriminalization and mass incarceration. How could that play out for regular people? Do you see, as you just said, families, friends, people actually facing fines or jail time for this? Uh, well, not only jails uh, and, and, and fine, but we're talking about prison time. We're talking about minimum mandatory sentences, which means I'm caught up now in a conspiracy in the federal court or even in the state court where I'm complicit or I'm aiding or abetting someone who gets ultimately charged with manslaughter or murder, which is a life sentence. So we're not talking about just fines like a traffic ticket. We're talking about serious consequences in this country. So you're anticipating an increased demand for lawyers. Are you then trying to get lawyers trained up or prepared so that there is more of a supply when they're needed? Well, that's uh, where NACDL is in a unique position to really be on the forefront of this. We train lawyers all over the country, and we've done that for 63 years. But now we are going to be training lawyers in the country to deal with how jurors, how the public will perceive my client who miscarries and is charged with murder. Because at the end of the day, if you have to go to trial, you want a fair jury and you want fair folks um, making decisions about very, very difficult cases. Lawyers obviously cost money, even if it's a public defender being paid for by the government. What is your expectation of whether people who need lawyers will be able to pay for them or other ways to cover that expense? Well, whenever you have laws that lead to rampant overcriminalization, you stretch your resources. So rich people will always be able to lawyer up. They will always have access to attorneys. They will always be able to have that advice that you should have at the front end. Poor people will be left behind. I don't get a lawyer if I'm poor until I'm actually charged with a crime in this country and most jurisdictions. So I have to wait to that moment until I get charged. If I have money, if I have access to counsel, I get advice on the front end of being able to perhaps avoid the consequences um, that would I would face if I didn't have money. That's Lisa Wayne, Executive Director of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Lisa, thank you. Thank you. 
There's more hope today for an agreement on gun safety measures in Congress. The top Senate Republican, Mitch McConnell, says he intends to support a deal. These bipartisan talks echo a process Florida went through four years ago after shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. NPR's Greg Allen reports on how Florida Republicans and Democrats came together to pass that state's most significant gun control measure in decades. 17 students and adults were killed at the high school in Parkland in February of 2018. Almost immediately, students from the school and family members of those killed and wounded descended on the Capitol in Tallahassee, demanding action from lawmakers and the governor. In signing the bill, Florida's governor at the time, Rick Scott, said he wanted a measure that would make schools safer, provide funds to treat mental illness, and yes, impose restrictions on guns. Will this bill give far more tools to keep guns away from people who should not have them? The answer to all three is yes. And that is why I'm signing the legislation today. The measure provided funding to improve security at schools. It also raised the minimum age to 21 for buying a long gun, such as an AR-15 style rifle. And it established a red flag law, allowing law enforcement officers to seize the weapons of anyone deemed a threat to themselves or others. A leading Senate Democrat called Florida's law a possible template for federal legislation. When Governor Scott signed the bill, it was the first gun safety legislation adopted in Florida in more than 20 years. Jared Moskowitz, a Democratic House member who represented Parkland, helped win passage of the groundbreaking law. He says it began with a tour he organized. Lawmakers, including Republican House and Senate leaders, visited the scene of the shootings. There were bullet holes through the windows and backpacks piled up outside and homework scattered all over the place, blood in the hallway. And they needed to see it and not just sit in their office in Tallahassee and watch it on TV was very impactful. I mean, they were all crying. I mean, how could you not be? To pass it, Democrats had to abandon their push for a ban on semi-automatic rifles, like the AR-15-style weapon used in Parkland. Republicans had to turn their backs on the powerful gun lobby and agree to gun control measures they had opposed. Ryan Petty's daughter, Elena, was one of those killed in Parkland. As a lifetime NRA member, Petty says he struggled with, but ultimately supported, raising the age for buying a long gun to 21. Later, he says lawmakers told him the support of families was crucial. The impact the families had, our message to them, communicating the loss and the real magnitude and scope of the Parkland tragedy made all the difference to them. Bob Galtieri says there's no doubt the Florida law has prevented violence. He's sheriff in the St. Petersburg area and a big proponent of the state's red flag law. Galtieri says more than 8,000 red flag orders have been issued in Florida in the last four years, allowing law enforcement to take firearms from troubled individuals. So as everybody talks about prevention and connecting the dots, that's what this is all about, which makes it a very, very good thing. Rick Scott, now a U.S. senator, speaks proudly of the work that was done to pass Florida's school safety law. But perhaps surprisingly, he's been noncommittal about similar legislation at the federal level. Here's Scott in a recent interview with Bloomberg. I think most of this we have to focus at the state level because what happens is they know what fits to their state and you can make changes if it doesn't work right. The question now in Washington is whether the recent shootings in Uvalde, Texas and Buffalo will shake politicians from entrenched positions so they can reach a compromise like the one passed in Florida. Former Democratic Representative Jared Moskowitz recalls that at the time, the NRA threatened retaliation and primary challenges for any Republican who signed on. Not one single incumbent who voted for that bill lost their reelection. Not one. And that includes Florida's former governor, now Senator Rick Scott. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami.
He's a 77-year-old millionaire who mostly campaigned on TikTok. His main issue is government corruption, even though he's been charged with corruption from his time as a mayor. And he's in a tight race to be the next president of Colombia. Tune in for that story tomorrow. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There's a dramatic shortage of lifeguards this summer. In fact, the National Recreation and Parks Association says eight out of 10 parks and rec departments can't find enough staff. Christian Fodenwenzel of Oregon Public Broadcasting reports. She's usually a preschool teacher, but Azzy Bayou has taken this day off to teach her own four-year-old how to swim. She's balancing him on a blow-up unicorn in the pool at East Portland Community Center. There you go. You did a great job. Good job. Let's hold it too. Let's keep our feet up. Bayou thought she'd easily be able to find someone to teach him this summer, but there's a long line for swim lessons. We were trying to uh, register. They don't have any, and it's like a waiting list. So I decided to come out with him and show him the experience, how it feels being in the water. A few years ago, Portland had swim lessons every day, even on weekends. But not this summer, says Andy Amato, who runs the aquatics program. Compared to pre-pandemic, our, our indoor pools were probably running at about 25% uh, um, for swim lesson, um, what they were beforehand. That means 75% fewer lessons. Lifeguards both teach swimming lessons and keep the pool safe. This year, the profession has been hit by a perfect storm. The pandemic closed public pools and lifeguards had to find other work. In Portland, pool managers had to start from scratch to fill 750 summer positions. Amato says they don't have half the staff they need yet. The job can be intimidating. There's, I think, some people have that preconceived notion that if I'm not like a swim team swimmer, that I, I can't do this job, where that is not the case at all. The historically low unemployment rate's not helping. Most summer jobs don't require as much training or scooping poop out of the pool in front of friends. Port and Parks and Rec spokesman Mark Ross worries the lifeguard shortage disproportionately impacts kids already at a disadvantage. Ideally, swimming pools are democratic. Studies show children of color are more susceptible to drowning, and he says pools are a summer oasis for low-income kids. The splashing and the joyful cries and the wonderful feeling of drowsy fatigue and getting some snacks after splashing around, that's what we're here to provide. The American Lifeguard Association estimates one-third of the nation's beaches and pools are affected by the shortage, and that doesn't just mean fewer swim lessons. Tens of thousands of pools across the country are closed. But there are exceptions. Glen Otto Park sits on the bend of Oregon's Sandy River. It's a beautiful and popular beach, but it's also dangerous with underwater snags, rapids, and freezing snowmelt from Mount Hood. Still, it's all staffed up this summer. These environments are really different than the controlled environment of a pool. Sean Rawson runs the River Rescue Program here. It's supported through a partnership with an ambulance company. With more training and better pay, these lifeguarding jobs provide a path into fields like firefighting and law enforcement. Lifeguard Andrew Fox is already an EMT. He stands ready in his wetsuit with a paddleboard, life jacket and knife. He says the gig's fun. It piqued my interest because you're out of the ambulance for four months, you're out in the sun, you're swimming, you're doing a lot more active things. Lifeguards here helped close to 200 swimmers last year. Fox says that's what this job is all about. For NPR News, I'm Christian Foden-Wenzel in Portland.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock talks about his new memoir and how he proved himself wrong by winning a Georgia seat, a Senate seat as a black Democrat. That story and more still to come. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, celebrating summer with farm kitchen catering for graduations, birthdays, and reunions. View menu online at volantefarms.com catering. The Boston New Works Festival, featuring new original plays June 23rd to 26th, Calderwood Pavilion and Boston Center for the Arts, bostontheaterscene.org. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. A really nice evening ahead, clear overnight tonight, and the sun's back tomorrow and Thursday in the 70s both days. If WBUR is your news lifeline, give monthly and get your support doubled by some members of the Morrow Society. That's only until midnight tonight at wbur.org. Thank you. WBUR supporters include Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com Landry and Arcari Rugs and Carpeting, annual tent event with new, vintage, and antique hand-knotted rugs, Saturday, 8 to 4, Salem only. LandryandArcari.com And the MassArt Art Museum, designing motherhood explores the arc of human reproduction through art and design. Learn more at maam.massart.edu. WBUR is going out on a limb, and we hope you'll join us. I'm Rupa Shanoi. We're eliminating a five-day on-air fundraiser this month so you can hear WBUR uninterrupted. But we still need to make our goal. Take a minute right now and give monthly at WBUR.org. That way we'll meet the goal and you can still hear all the news and storytelling that brings us together. Give now and thank you. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Senator Raphael Warnock is a Democrat from Georgia, up for re-election this year. He'll face Republican Herschel Walker, a former football star. Warnock is also the senior pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, the church that Martin Luther King Jr. called home. And now he's out with a memoir titled A Way Out of No Way. You're not in the churches that I grew up in too long on a Sunday morning before you hear in sermon, in prayer, perhaps even in song, that our God makes a way out of no way. It is uh, an expression um, born of oppression and travail, and yet keeping the faith even in the midst of struggle. In the book, he writes that back in 2013, when he was first considering running, he didn't see a path for an African-American Democrat to win in Georgia. Well, he proved himself wrong, and I asked what he thought had changed. My story is the result of work that's been going on a long time. Long before I showed up, people have been building on the multiracial promise of an America that embraces all of us. And um, about a decade ago, uh, as some of us were looking at what was happening in Georgia, uh, we saw a path to build a multiracial majority that could create a, a coalition that could achieve something like this. And as a result of that, I was elected not only the first black senator from Georgia, but we elected my friend and brother John Ossoff, the first Jewish senator from Georgia. And I think somewhere in glory, 
Martin Luther King Jr. and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel were smiling because when they marched, they marched alongside one another, fighting for voting rights. And in their name and memory, I continue that struggle for voting rights, for access to health care, which I believe is a human right, and for the struggles of ordinary, hardworking Georgia families. Yeah. You've had some fun in uh, in your campaign ads. There's one that shows you running with a football <laughs> and acknowledging that if that was the race with your opponent, you you would understand if voters went the other way. I, I, I try to stay in my, my own lane. My, my brothers, as, as I discussed in the book, they were the athletes in the family. I played in the band. <laughs> <laughs> Trumpet and baritone horn. <laughs> I stayed in my lane. You know, this is the fourth time I have interviewed you. Um, the first was right after George Floyd was killed. Um, and you told me then, you talked about the responsibility to speak up in that moment, to work for change. And I was thinking about since since that day, summer of 2020, we have had, of course, more police shootings and, and the big lie and the January 6th insurrection. And right now we're in the middle of these hugely polarized national debates over abortion and gun violence and school shootings. And I wonder, does it sometimes feel to you like the country is moving in the wrong direction, that we are more divided than ever? Democracy is hard work. Democracy is not a noun. It's a verb. And um, over the course of time, our democracy expands. It gets a little closer towards those ideals. There are moments when it contracts, but even contractions uh, open the possibility for new birth and new hope. And so I, but you I don't, think we have forgive to keep me, working. Forgive my interrupting, but, but you don't see this as an unusually dangerous moment for our democracy? You and I are speaking as, as the, you know, January 6th, the public hearings for the investigation into all of that are underway on Capitol Hill. They are. No, there's no question. Our democracy is imperiled. And it's the reason why I was pushing so hard over the course of the last year or so, the moment I got here to pass voting rights in our country. After I was elected, we saw uh, the emergence of voter suppression laws across dozens of states. And those laws and the passing of those laws was informed by the big lie, January 6th, the most violent attack on our capital. But here's what's also true. January 5th is also true. On January 5th, the country, Georgia, sent a black man and a Jewish man, both mentored by John Lewis in different ways to the Senate. And so that's the question before us right now. That's what's at stake in this election and in this moment. January 5th and January 6th each tell us something important about America. And the question is, which way are we going to go? And it's, it's our responsibility as citizens, I think, to push us closer towards our ideals. A lot of people listening in Georgia and across the country, look at these issues we're talking about, whether it's voting rights or abortion or gun safety, and say, hey, Democrats, you control Congress. You control the White House. Um, get something done. Find a way. Um, to which you say what? Uh, to which I say that because Georgia stood up, we passed the single largest tax cut for middle and working class families in American history. We passed the largest infrastructure bill on a bipartisan basis. Your point is uh, democratic in, achievements. In, yeah. in, in, in a generation. And uh, I continue to fight 
to lower the costs of families that are struggling right now, uh, which is why I've introduced an insulin bill, which would cap the cost of insulin to no more than $35 per person out-of-pocket cost. We, we need to cap the cost of prescription drugs. But do you get frustrated sitting in the Senate and there is inaction on what I think there's universal agreement are, are major animating issues of our day, and the Senate can't pass anything? You know, it's been a long time since Columbine. And we witness these kinds of tragedies and no movement. And we have an obligation to get something done, whether we're talking about common sense gun laws or the cost of insulin and seniors having to choose between buying groceries and, and buying prescription drugs. This is the work that we're called to do. And I hear that's a very positive answer. It's a very, um, you're very on message answer. Um, <laughs> I guess, I guess, but you you know that people are, are looking at their radio and saying, but I, but things aren't getting done. What breaks the gridlock? You know, it, it didn't occur to me until I was literally sitting in the room for the hearing of Katanji Brown Jackson. And there was a lot in that hearing that was off-putting for, for people who, who have any sense of decency. But there she was sitting there. And it occurred to me only after I was sitting there that had I not won, as qualified as she is, she wouldn't have even been sitting in the chair in that nomination process. And um, the long-term implications of her being there are difficult to overstate. For me, the legislation that we would write is a letter to our children. So whether we're talking about leaving for them a sustainable planet or a country that embraces them, no matter what they look like in the world or who they love or where they worship, that is the work that we are asked to do and I'm honored to do it every single day. And as hard as it is, I still think we can make a way out of no way. Senator, thank you. Thank you very much. Raphael Warnock, his book is A Way Out of No Way, a memoir of truth, transformation, and the new American story. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. Another stunning day with nice ones to follow. Look for clear skies overnight tonight, lows about 60 tomorrow. Sunshine again, highs in the mid-70s. Then Thursday, mostly sunny, up around 78 degrees. Could possibly make it to 90 on Friday. 79 degrees now in the Boston area at 459. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. 
Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. More than a decade ago, former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords was shot by a gunman, and when a shooter opened fire on the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas last month, she says she was devastated. Too much guns. Too much violence, too much violence, too much violence. Gabby Giffords on gun control coming up. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a Ukrainian medic has disappeared after smuggling her body cam footage to the Associated Press. In one video clip, she's seen treating Russians. They're not going to be as kind to us as we are to them, but I don't really have a choice. We'll hear her story. Flooding around Yellowstone National Park is cutting off Montana towns and leaving residents stranded. Also ahead, COVID-sniffing dogs at a Massachusetts elementary school. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says a group of bipartisan lawmakers is close to finalizing the framework of a bill aimed at strengthening gun safety measures. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Congress has faced enormous pressure to break a decades-old stalemate on gun reforms in the wake of two mass shootings last month. Majority Leader Schumer says the framework is far from perfect, but that if passed, it would be the most significant action the Senate has taken on gun control in decades. If passed, it would enhance background checks for those under 21. It will make it harder for domestic abusers to acquire a weapon by closing the boyfriend loophole. This framework also calls for new punishment for gun traffickers. One of the most significant pieces of the legislation is helping states to create so-called red flag laws, which seek to keep firearms out of the hands of people deemed a threat to themselves or others. This bill would not ban assault-style weapons. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is slated to travel to Israel, the Israeli-occupied West Bank, and Saudi Arabia next month. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv the U.S. seeks to reassure Israeli and Arab allies about defending themselves against Iran. After meetings with Israeli and Palestinian leaders, President Biden is set to attend a summit in Saudi Arabia with leaders of Arab countries. As a presidential candidate, Biden had promised to make Saudi Arabia a pariah after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. But now the U.S. is seeking to renew ties with the oil-rich state as gas prices are rising and there are other regional concerns such as Iran's nuclear program. The White House says Biden wants to reassure Middle Eastern allies the U.S. will help defend against threats from Iran. Israel says Biden's visit will shed light on actions the U.S. is taking to integrate Israel into the region. Reportedly, the U.S. has brokered some agreements between Israel and Saudi Arabia, which could eventually lead to Israeli-Saudi ties. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. As a round in digital currencies deepens, some of the biggest players in the crypto industry are laying off staff. More from NPR's David Gura. The CEO of Coinbase, which runs the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the U.S., says the company plans to reduce its staff by almost a fifth. Its share price is down almost 80% this year, and BlockFi and Crypto.com are also laying off hundreds of employees. The staff cuts come during a rough year for cryptocurrencies and markets in general. So far this year, Bitcoin has lost more than half its value, and Ether, another popular cryptocurrency, is down almost 70%. The steep drop in the value of cryptocurrencies is putting pressure on companies that were flying high just a few months ago. 
Bitcoin's backers have claimed it would be a hedge against inflation, but so far, that hasn't been the case. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow was down 151 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The highest court in Massachusetts says a ballot question that would classify Uber and Lyft drivers as independent contractors cannot go before voters this fall. The question also asked voters to limit the liability that companies would face when people who drive for them are involved in crashes. The Supreme Judicial Court says the language in the ballot question is unconstitutional and should not have been approved. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says the court's ruling could affect other proposed ballot questions going forward. I think they made it clear that in the future, as they review any kind of proposed ballot questions, they're going to be scrutinizing them very carefully to see other hidden kind of provisions. A group backing the ballot question is now asking for lawmakers to pass a bill to classify ride-sharing drivers as independent contractors. Opponents of a new law that allows undocumented immigrants in Massachusetts to get driver's licenses say they're confident they can get a recall petition on the November ballot. Wendy Wakeman is with the group Fair and Secure Massachusetts, which is leading the effort to repeal the law. She says that lawmakers are out of step with what most residents want. You're saying we're going to take a bunch of people who've broken a whole bunch of laws and who are here illegally, and we're going to give them the legal license. It just doesn't make sense. Wakeman says the law could also make it easier for residents without legal status to register to vote. Secretary of State Galvin says that concern is not founded. The law is set to take effect in July of next year. Police in Lowell are searching for a missing three-year-old boy. The boy named Harry went missing about 9.30 this morning from his babysitter's house in Lowell. Barry Golner is the superintendent of the Lowell Police Department. He says a state police dive team is searching nearby wetlands. In all, we're anywhere between 150 and 180 uh, law enforcement and fire personnel searching for this child right now. It is a ongoing, active, continuous search. Police say the boy was wearing a maroon shirt and gray pants when he went missing. In the forecast, should be a nice night tonight. Clear skies down around 60 degrees tomorrow and Thursday. Lots of sunshine. Highs only about 74 tomorrow. 78 degrees on Thursday. Friday could head for 90. 79 degrees now in Boston at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The day of the shootings in Uvalde last month, Gabby Giffords tweeted that she was devastated. She asked how many more children will be killed by guns. Gabby Giffords, of course, knows all too well the effects of gun violence. The county's going to be working a shooting. We've been informed Gabriel Giffords is involved. The shooting left six people dead. Including a federal judge and a nine-year-old girl. And injured 13 others, including Gabby Giffords. Police say he shot 14 others, including the congresswoman, before bystanders tackled him. In 2011, Giffords was serving as a U.S. congresswoman from Arizona when she was shot in the head by a gunman at a constituent event outside Tucson. Since then, Giffords has dedicated her life to calling for action on gun control. She co-founded Giffords, an advocacy group that promotes gun safety. 
She has recovered from the shooting, but Giffords does not have full use of the right side of her body, and she struggles with speech, with language. She agreed to join us today along with the executive director of Giffords, Peter Ambler. Her staff suggested that we pose specific questions in a specific way to enable her to give fuller answers. So what you are about to hear is me asking some of those questions and then, when needed, following up and asking additional questions of our own. We begin with introductions. I'm Gabby Giffords. I'm from Tucson, Arizona. January 8, 2011 changed my life forever. I was a congresswoman. I was shot in my head while me was my constituents. I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. I watched gun violence destroy too many lives. After the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, I've said, enough is enough. I founded a group called Giffords. We are on a mission to end gun violence. Congresswoman, how are you feeling after the tragedy in Uvalde last month? Too much guns, too much violence, too much violence, too much violence. Tiny. Kids, kids, kids. No bueno. No bueno. No bueno. There have been so many Uvaldes, so many shootings, so many times when nothing has changed. Does this time feel different to you? Better, better, better. Background checks. I think something that Gabby reminds us of is that this is a marathon, not a sprint in much the same way that her recovery has come through the sheer aggregation of hard work, thousands upon thousands of hours of speech therapy and physical therapy. That's what the gun safety movement is as well. You know, millions of advocates across the country working day in and day out to simply try and make the world a better place. I don't have to tell either of you what advocates of gun safety have found so frustrating is... Yeah that those efforts have continued, as you note, for years, and yet nothing seems to have changed. So I wonder, can you expand on why this time maybe feels different? Better. Background checks. Mentally ill. Pre-protectured. Yeah. Good stuff. We're looking at a package um, that is part of the framework that's released in the Senate that has the support of 10 Democrats and 10 Republicans. This is this bipartisan deal on gun safety that it looks like senators have reached. Go on. That's right. You know, we see several key provisions, including the extreme risk protection order support provision, which we've seen can have a life-saving impact. It allows family members, law enforcement, to flag somebody in their community who may be in crisis and temporarily restrain their access to, to a firearm. And that's vitally important. We're also closing, hopefully, the dating partner loophole. You know, there is this deadly nexus between gun violence and domestic violence. And in fact, many mass shootings, 54% of them start as a domestic violence incident, as, of course, the one in Uvalde did, as the one in Newtown did. States that have closed the dating partner loophole see significant reductions in um, homicide. Uh, and then, of course, we're focused on this um, expanded background check on 18 to 
20-year-olds or an enhanced background check. Right, up to age 21, yeah. yeah. Which are, you're, you're right, these are a few of the items that are in this deal, which again is far from being law, would not ban assault weapons. It would not create universal background checks. Is it enough, Peter? It's not enough, but it is a critical first step. It is, I think, narrow in scope, but significant in impact. And not just on the gun issue, but on our ability as a country and as a Congress to make progress on virtually anything. I think Americans feel like their needs are not being met, that their voices are not being heard. You know, millions of American parents living in fear of their kids' safety, millions of American children, you know, traumatized by this threat, by these drills on a daily basis. You see the Senate finally compelled to act. These laws, while not nearly as comprehensive as we need, are able to save lives, and they will. We were wrapping up when I asked Gabby Giffords if there was anything I'd missed, anything else she wanted to say. Here's what she told me. Our lives can change so quickly. Mine did when I was shot. But I never gave up hope. I chose to make a new start, to move ahead, to not look back. I'm relearning so many things, how to walk, how to talk, and I'm fighting to make the country safer. It can be so difficult. Losses hurt. Setbacks are hard. But I tell myself, move ahead. I'm finding joy in small things. Riding my bike, playing the French horn, going to the gym, laughing with friends. The small things add up. We are living in challenging time, but we are up for the challenge. My own recovery has taken years. Many, many people have helped me along the way, and I learned so much. I learned when people care for each other and work together, progress is possible. A better world is possible. That is former Arizona Congresswoman Gabby Giffords and Peter Ambler, the executive director of Giffords, the advocacy group she co-founded to promote gun safety. The leaders of Ukraine are gaming out where the war with Russia goes from here. Fighting in the east has slowed to a bloody slog. The capital is relatively safe from Russian attacks. So what does Ukraine want now? NPR's Greg Myrie met with one of President Volodymyr Zelensky's top advisors at Kiev's presidential compound today and asked him that question. Hi, Greg. Hi, Ari. Tell us about this advisor you met with. Who is he? Yeah, our NPR team sat down with a senior presidential advisor, Mihailo Podolyak. Now, Kiev, the city, feels more or less normal these days. But this ends the moment you enter the presidential compound. And it's not just the security outside. Inside the building, the sandbags are six feet high. They're stacked on windowsills, uh, blocking out the sun from these tall windows. Most of the lights are off. The hallways are dark and mostly empty. When we finally got to Podolyak's office, he's like a lot of people in the Zelensky administration, young and casual. He's in a black T-shirt that reads, Fight Like Ukrainians. He says he's working around the clock. There were several pairs of sneakers next to his desk cluttered with papers. That is such a vivid scene. And what did he say to you? How did he feel about the state of the war right now? 
So Podolyak is the chief negotiator for Ukraine. So you think he might want to talk about uh, possible peace negotiations, but he sees no prospect right now. So what he really wanted to talk about was weapons. Here he is. Now we see that this is truly a war of artillery, and we see that they are shooting uh, by a ratio of 10 or 15 to 1. Again, the math is clear. We will need parity of, we of weapons if we're going to be effective in any sort of counteroffensive. This Russian artillery advantage has allowed them to make some grinding progress in the Donbass region in the eastern part of the country. So the outgunned Ukrainians are making a big push right now for more weapons, and this comes on the eve of a NATO meeting Wednesday in Brussels. All right, so Ukraine wants more artillery fast. What are the chances they're going to get it? Well, Podolyak tweeted out a wish list on Monday. It includes 1,000 howitzers, 1,000 drones, 500 tanks, and it goes on from there. So NATO is not going to meet those demands in full. The U.S. and others are still sending weapons, but in much smaller quantities. Uh, Podolyak says Ukraine has a real problem right now. It's running low on ammunition for its old Soviet era weapons. Russia is really the only place that makes this kind of ammunition anymore. So here he is again. Russia has the overwhelming majority of these artillery type uh, weapons. What there is no shortage of in the world are NATO standard weapons, whether it be in the U.S. or in Western Europe or in Asian countries. So the longer this war goes on, Ukraine will be relying less on its old Soviet weapons and more on its modern NATO weapons. All right, well, the U.S. and Europe are starting to have conversations about how an end to this war could be negotiated. How is Ukraine receiving that? Ari, it's really a non-starter. I asked Podolyak, and here's what he said about the Russians. The reason that they do not want to negotiate anymore is because they're trying to get concessions from the West to freeze the conflict where it is so that they can claim victory. So we finished up our conversation with Podolyak. We were heading toward the door, and then he stopped us and offered one last comment. He said, if you get anything out of this interview, it's weapons, weapons, weapons. All right, NPR's Greg Myrie and Kiev. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. As a route in digital currencies deepens, crypto companies are warning of a possible recession and hundreds of employees losing their jobs. The crypto crash coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Historic New England, inviting you to enjoy June in New England. There are 38 historic sites and more than 1,000 acres of outdoor spaces to explore. Details at historicnewengland.org, funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism. A slide on Wall Street for the Dow and the S&P today, but not as bad as yesterday's. The Dow lost a half percent, 152 points, to close at 30,365. S&P fell for a fifth day, down 0.38 percent, to close at 37.35. The Nasdaq picked up 0.18 percent, to close at 10,828. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Tonight, when the Red Sox host the Oakland A's at Fenway Park, Red Sox fans will have a chance to eat as the A's do. 
Red Sox food vendor Aramark is running a series of culinary visits called Chefs on the Road. Tonight and tomorrow at Fenway, the head chef of the Oakland A's will offer fans a California-inspired dish of summer cod with corn and chanterelles. Earlier this month, Fenway's chef visited Oakland and served up lobster rolls. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org. Some members of our Mara Society gave their support to match your monthly gift. The match ends tonight at midnight, so please give now at wbur.org. Should have a clear moonlit night ahead tonight. Lows about 60. Tomorrow, sunshine's back. Highs about 74 degrees, so cooler than today. 79 degrees now. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from the Levelson Foundation. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Cryptocurrencies have been in free fall, and that's a gut punch to millions of amateur investors who thought they were buying into the future of finance. NPR's David Gura joins us now with more. Hi, David. Hey, Sasha. So this has been quite a rise and now fall. How did the crypto market get to this place? We're seeing a bit of a perfect storm taking place in the world of cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin has fallen dramatically. It's down about 70% from its all-time high. And other smaller digital currencies like Dogecoin are also down. In recent days, we've started to see the fallout from this. Several crypto companies like Coinbase have announced layoffs, and a couple others have halted withdrawals. Why are cryptocurrencies falling so sharply? Well, these are speculative assets, and a lot of what's driving the sell-off in stocks is also driving the sell-off in digital currencies. Right now, the Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates aggressively to fight high inflation. Bitcoin boosters have argued it would be the ultimate inflation hedge because there's a limited number of Bitcoin out there. But it hasn't behaved that way the way they said it would. Tech stocks have been tanking and Bitcoin is definitely not rallying. Ed Moya is a senior markets analyst at the firm Oanda, and he says there's also a sense of panic that's contributing to the sell-off. The crypto house is on fire and uh, everyone is just um, you know rushing to the exits because there's just complete lost confidence in the space. I'll note this route, this turmoil that we're seeing is in sharp contrast to what we saw just a few months ago when, if you remember, Sasha, it seemed like every other ad during the Super Bowl was for a crypto company. I do remember that. A lot of celebrities <laughs> promoting them. How are those companies doing today? Well, not great. But today, Coinbase, the company I mentioned at the beginning, it's the largest crypto exchange in the U.S. It aired an ad during the Super Bowl that was just a QR code. Coinbase announced plans to cut a fifth of its workforce. BlockFi is another company that's announced layoffs. So is Crypto.com, which hired Matt Damon to be its spokesman. The CEO of Coinbase told his staff in a memo that the company grew too quickly, but he also said he made the decision to cut back because of economic uncertainty. He said he believes we're at the start of a recession. So we're seeing not only this massive sell-off in crypto, but also this overarching fear about where the U.S. economy is headed. Millions of people bought crypto, and that, that cannot feel good for their portfolios. 
You know, this has been a really rude awakening for them. Uh, Ishwar Prasad is an economics professor at Cornell, and he told me 2021 was the height of cryptomania. That was certainly a watershed moment. So that meant that cryptos had risen a lot, and it gave them much more room to fall. Bitcoin hit a record of more than $69,000 in November of 2021. Today, it's trading around $23,000. And if you bought Bitcoin the day after that ad bonanza during the Super Bowl, it is now worth about half of what you paid for it. And what about regulators? They must be taking note of this. They have to be taking note of this. Yeah, for sure. And what's especially worrisome to regulators is the crypto universe keeps expanding, and that's given rise to many products, some of which are very sophisticated, some of which are gimmicky or outright frauds. Now, regulators have noted that growth. They've also said they're worried about all the amateur investors who have bought crypto. But this continues to be a space that is largely unregulated. Campbell Harvey is a finance professor at Duke University. If there's no guidance whatsoever, then people will be taken advantage of, and we want to prevent that. Right now, there just isn't much clarity on the basics, like which regulator is in charge of what. Senator Cynthia Lummis, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand recently proposed new legislation. Their bill would give more authority to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. But the bottom line is there's a real sense, Sasha, that regulation just hasn't kept up. And very briefly, David, where does crypto go from here? Yeah, there are plenty of crypto skeptics out there who are saying, I told you so. But true believers argue we're in what they call a crypto winter that will give rise to a crypto spring. More credible cryptocurrencies will survive and the rest will disappear. What does seem certain is given the environment we're in right now, with the Fed likely to continue raising interest rates, Sasha, there will be more pain ahead. NPR's David Gura, thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow marks 10 years since the announcement of DACA. Officially known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the policy still protects hundreds of thousands of immigrants from deportation and lets them work legally, but its future is precarious because of legal challenges, leaving hundreds of thousands of young immigrants in limbo, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. For a temporary stopgap, DACA turned out to be surprisingly resilient. The Trump administration tried to kill the program, but the Supreme Court stepped in to revive it. And tens of thousands of undocumented immigrants who were brought to the country as children, sometimes called dreamers, rushed to file their applications. I knew that Dachau was very fragile. Kurlish Orozco was one of them. I knew that it's something that could be taken away at any moment. Um, but I guess I also had other worries, like um, being able to obtain this and get a scholarship and, and drive and get a job. Orozco is 19. She's originally from Nicaragua, moved to Miami with her parents when she was two. Orozco applied for DACA in October of 2020, as she was getting ready for college. The months dragged by with no response. Then, last July, a federal judge in Texas ruled that DACA is illegal and blocked the Biden administration from granting any new applications. So I was one of those kids that were stuck in limbo. I wasn't able to go to the schools that I worked so hard to be able to attend. And it was something that was extremely devastating to know that you put in all the effort and you can't reap any of the rewards. DACA is basically frozen in place. There are more than 600,000 recipients who can renew their status for now, while the Biden administration appeals that ruling. But there are roughly another 80,000 dreamers like Orozco, whose applications are on hold indefinitely. And hundreds of thousands more who will never get a chance to apply for DACA, because they don't fit into the narrow eligibility requirements laid out when the policy was created a decade ago. As President Obama said at the time, DACA was always supposed to be temporary until Congress could agree on permanent protections for DREAMers. Now, let's be clear. This is not amnesty. This is not immunity. This is not a path to citizenship. It's not a permanent fix. According to the rules, you can only apply for DACA if you've been in the U.S. continuously since 2007. 
So the vast majority of dreamers who are graduating from high school today don't qualify and may never get the benefits of DACA. The difference is night and day from being undocumented to then having protection from deportation, work authorization, and essentially being able to start one's life. Tom Wong is a political science professor at UC San Diego who's been studying the impact of DACA. For many recipients, Wong says it has transformed their lives, allowing them to get degrees, start careers, buy cars and homes. But as an unintended consequence, DACA may have actually taken some of the steam out of a legislative fix that would have provided permanent legal status for undocumented young people. Polls consistently show that a pathway to citizenship for DREAMers is popular, but Congress still hasn't taken any action. And now DACA itself may be running out of time because of a lawsuit brought by the state of Texas. Here's Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton speaking on the Fox Business Channel after the judge ruled last year. President Obama created DACA out of thin air, and this judge is correct to say that this this made-up law that Obama overruled federal law with was completely unconstitutional. That ruling was heartbreaking for dreamers across the country. For Kurlish Orozco in Miami, it meant missing out on a full college scholarship, putting an end to her dream of going to school out of state. But Orozco still found a way to attend Florida International University while living at home with her parents. For Orozco, the 10th anniversary of DACA is complicated. It's a very bittersweet moment because while on one hand, it's incredible that DACA survived for 10 years, it's also angering to know that we're in the situation 10 years later when DACA was supposed to be, you know, bigger than just a Band-Aid. Orozco says the whole experience has made her even more determined to become an immigration lawyer so that she can help other kids like her, with DACA or without it. Joel Rose, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The Red Sox are back home at Fenway tonight for a nine-game homestand. Tonight, the Oakland A's are in town for a three-game series. Sox pitcher Nick Pavetta will face the A's Jared Koenig. Coming to WBUR City Space Monday, June 27th, historian Jessica B. Harris, author of High on the Hog, A Culinary Journey from Africa to America. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. 79 degrees now in the Boston area at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight New England locations. Recognizing Boston explorers whose mission provides children ages 7 to 15 the opportunity to explore Boston in an electronic-free setting and learn lifelong skills. Committed to ensuring all children have full and equal access to Boston, bostonexplorers.org. And Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting a toe-tapping, good-time musical, Woody Says, The Life and Music of Woody Guthrie, now through June 26th, mrt.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. WBUR is conducting a bold experiment in fundraising this month. Instead of a five-day on-air fundraiser, you will hear WBUR uninterrupted. That's right, no on-air fundraiser. But we still need to meet our goal, and we can. If you take a minute right now and make a monthly gift at WBUR.org. It's that simple and that powerful. Give monthly at WBUR.org, and thanks. Live from NPR News, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, a bipartisan Senate agreement to are aimed at reining in gun violence is gaining more support, even from people who own guns. Senate Minority Leader 
Mitch McConnell says the 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats who came up with a framework for federal gun reform got it right. I think if this framework becomes the actual piece of legislation, it's a step forward, a step forward on a bipartisan basis. McConnell says support for provisions among people who own guns and support the framework is off the charts overwhelming. Democrats want the new law to be as stringent as possible, while Republicans want nothing to do with a law that would turn pro-gun voters against them. That means tough bargaining ahead on the fine print of that legislation. Meanwhile, in Wyoming, Yellowstone National Park will be closed through at least Wednesday following unprecedented rainfall and flooding. No deaths have been reported, but... As Will Walkie from Jackson Hole Community Radio tells us, authorities are still assessing damages and evacuating the area. Several roads in northwest Wyoming and southern Montana have been completely washed out and will be out of commission for the foreseeable future. Visitors have been told to leave Yellowstone and are packing into safer gateway communities like Cody, Wyoming and Bozeman, Montana. Meanwhile, local residents are dealing with property damages, destroyed sewer systems, and cut off supply lines. Federal and local officials will be convening later this week to plan when and how Yellowstone National Park will reopen. As of now, no timeline has been announced. Rain and snowfall is expected to continue in parts of the Upper Mountain West this week. For NPR News, I'm Will Walkie in Jackson, Wyoming. Stocks finished slightly lower on Wall Street, narrowing some of yesterday's losses after tumbling into bear market. The Dow was down half a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has thrown out a ballot question that would have asked voters to keep rideshare drivers classified as independent contractors rather than as employees. The question was proposed by some big tech companies. WBUR's Yasmeen Nammer reports the court called the question vaguely worded. Beth Griffith is the executive director of the Boston Independent Drivers Guild. Her group is part of a coalition trying to unionize rideshare drivers. She's relieved the court throughout the ballot question. We won the battle, but we still have the war to fight. We are organizing workers, organizing drivers. You know, we're not giving these companies a chance to try to come back in a year or two and try to pull this garbage, this baloney again. Drivers who oppose the ballot initiative say companies like Uber and Lyft have been gradually cutting their pay. But the companies say the only way they can provide flexible schedules is to keep workers classified as contractors. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. Cambridge-based Moderna is a step closer to seeing its COVID-19 vaccine administered to children ages 6 through 17. Today, a Food and Drug Administration advisory panel voted to authorize the shot for that age group. The FDA and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention still need to give their okay. Right now, Pfizer has the only shot approved for those from 6 to 17. The city of Boston has named its first ever chief behavioral health officer. Dr. Kevin Simon will lead city initiatives intended to improve mental health care access, especially for young people in Boston. Mental health has become a nationwide concern exacerbated by the pandemic. Simon currently serves as assistant in psychiatry at Boston Children's Hospital. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Make your dreams a priority with a part-time MBA from Babson. Ranked the top Northeast graduate school for entrepreneurship by the Princeton Review and Entrepreneur Magazine. Attend online or in person. Apply by June 24th for scholarship consideration for fall 2022. Babson.edu slash part-time. 
Bright skies out there in the Boston area. Another clear, moonlit night tonight. Lows about 60. Tomorrow should bring back the sunshine. Highs about 74 degrees. And for Thursday, should reach closer to 80 degrees with sunshine, the slight chance of an afternoon shower. And turning hot on Friday, just about 90 degrees. 75 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. When the Ukrainian city of Mariupol fell to Russia last month, that followed weeks of heavy fighting. Media reports from the city were hard to come by. But one Ukrainian medic recorded body cam scenes she saw. She then smuggled her recordings out to the Associated Press. Her name is Yulia Payevska, and she's known in Ukraine as Tyra. Days after she managed to sneak that footage to the AP, she was captured by Russian soldiers and disappeared. I spoke earlier with Lori Hennant, an investigative correspondent for the AP in Paris. She wrote about Tyra. And a warning, we mentioned disturbing incidents, including the death of a child. Hennant began by describing who Tyra was. Tyra was first well-known as a martial arts athlete. And then during the 2014 protests, she became a quite famous medic in Kiev at the Euromaiden protests. But it really took off after that because she started to train other medics. She created this medical unit called Tyra's Angels. She had a big, has a big personality. She became a member of Ukraine's Invictus team. Invictus is an organization set up for disabled military veterans for athletics, kind of like an Olympics, but for military veterans. As I understand it, she recorded about two weeks' worth of footage on a a camera she had somewhere on her body. And in it, she's seen treating soldiers and also civilians, and in one case, a little boy. That was very powerful, of course, because it's a child. Could you tell us about that? The little boy came in with his sister. The two of them had been injured at a shooting at a checkpoint. Their parents were killed. And it's incredibly moving to watch this team of doctors and nurses and medics try to save these children. The little girl survived, and the little boy, despite the uh, CPR, despite all of their efforts, the little boy died. And you see Tyra just absolutely break up with his death. And she kind of leans her body against the wall, which you, which you actually see. And she just says, I hate this. In one clip, she's seen treating a Russian soldier. This is significant because she's Ukrainian. Could you describe what happens in that scene? Well, she actually treats Russian soldiers in a couple of the clips, but the one that was particularly moving was one of the last things that she filmed, and uh, it was on March 10th. And these two soldiers, both clearly injured, are being brought in by Ukrainian soldiers. They're both Russian. And one of them has an obvious leg injury, and she tells the Ukrainians to be gentle with him. And then a colleague says to her, are you going to treat them? They're not going to be as kind to us as we are to them, but I don't really have a choice. 
they're prisoners of war and I will treat them. And what's really striking about it is that she was taken prisoner, as far as we know, six days later. And then sometime after that, she appeared on a Russian television network and her face is bruised and she's in handcuffs. And when I see that footage and then think back to her comments about how they won't be as kind to us as we will be to them, uh, really, it, it remains moving. Oh, I'm sure. Any idea where she is, where that footage of her seemingly captured was taken? No, it's really hard to say. You can imagine that this footage is very important for many reasons. It could document war crimes. You can imagine that the Russians may not want the public to see some of it. Yet she was able to get it out to the AP. How did she do that? Tyra passed the data card to a police officer that she knew would be coming into contact with our team in Mariupol right around the time that everybody was hoping to get to leave the city. So when they got the data card, my colleague Vasilisa Stefanenko made the decision, knowing that they were passing a lot of Russian checkpoints, but not how many, to hide it inside a tampon. She sliced open a tampon and put the data card, which is quite small, inside it. That allowed them to pass undetected through 15 Russian checkpoints um, until they finally made it to the 16th Ukrainian one. Lori, in the article you wrote about Tyra's story, one of her colleagues is quoted as saying, this is not about saving one particular woman. Tyra will represent those medics and women who went to the front. Do you know what that person meant exactly with that? Tyra's capture is a sign of all that, that this person I think sees has gone wrong, that medics should be protected, that hospitals should be protected. And neither of those is happening right now. That's Lori Hennant, investigative correspondent with the AP. Lori, thank you. Thank you. Heavy rain and flooding have forced Yellowstone National Park to close. An unknown number of tourists and locals are stranded there. The water receded some today, which means residents can finally evacuate the town of Gardner, Montana. Until now, they've been unable to leave because water had surrounded the town. NPR's Kirk Ziegler has the latest. Aerial footage shows the muddy and swollen Yellowstone River wiping out sections of Highway 89. In this video posted by NBC News, a large house slides off the cliff bank and crashes into the waves. The massive building bobbles downstream like a houseboat. No one was in it, but mostly intact, there's concern it could wipe out bridges downriver. It's been insane, yes. We, yeah, we watched the house fall in. Parker Manning and his family, visiting from Indiana, have been watching the river nervously from their vacation rental in Gardner. It's moving at such a fast pace. There's some, some ground on the embankments about an eighth of a mile down that's sloughing off um, and constantly falling into the river. Gardner, population 900 and home to Yellowstone's famous Gateway Arch, dedicated by Theodore Roosevelt, is one of the park's busiest entrances. Rebecca Demery and her husband own the town's only grocery store, which has been packed with shoppers. Obviously, our truck last night couldn't get through. Um, we get bread deliveries twice a week. We couldn't get that. Uh, we get milk and eggs twice a week. That didn't come this morning. 
They had anticipated supply chain problems anyway, so they do have a stockpile of bottled water. There's been a boil order in Gardner due to flood damage. Emergency deliveries should resume today, but access in and out of town remains limited. And the park superintendent expects the northern half of Yellowstone to be closed for a substantial period, which is bad news for gateway towns. I think at this point we're just trying to take it hour by hour, but it's it's going to be a very different year than what we expected, I think. 50 miles away in Livingston, Montana, the hospital had to be evacuated. Several structures are destroyed, according to the Park County Sheriff. The National Guard has rescued at least a dozen stranded people by helicopter. Now, this is just the latest major disaster to hit the West in recent weeks, from large wildfires in the southwest to now extraordinary rainfall and flooding in the northwest. Scientists are hesitant to pinpoint any one event on climate change, but they do say erratic swings in the weather are expected as the climate warms. For now, stranded people like Amanda Wilson from Georgia are just relieved that they're safe. It's like my husband and I said, we're safe. Um, We have food, we have water. We have a place to stay, and that's that's the main thing. Until word came that the highway leaving Gardner would reopen, Wilson had been trying to figure out what to do about her elderly father, who has enough insulin to last through Saturday. Kirk Sigler, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Older homeowners hoping to downsize in this market may be in for a rude awakening. The high cost of retirement communities and long waits for subsidized housing have some seniors feeling anxious. Vermont Public Radio's Nina Keck reports. Joanne Van Dusen lives in a small, white, two-story home in Manchester, Vermont. It was built in 1912 and has a cozy brick fireplace and a three-season porch. And I love my house. I don't really want to sell, but... I am going to be 78 next month, and I think, how on earth am I going to manage all of this in a few years? It's a concern that hit hard in February when a health emergency forced her to undergo several surgeries. And I have thought, if I did sell my house, this is a good time, prices are high, where would I go? There isn't any place to go. And if I get to the point where the cost is higher than I can pay, what do I do? Dorothy Delaney is a 70-year-old nurse. She's facing a similar housing conundrum in Hinesburg, Vermont. Well, I get offers, you know, <laughs> come out to Seattle and well, you can live in our basement, Mom, you know, and I'm like, uh, I don't want to live in a basement in Seattle. Yeah, I can say that that is happening all over the place. Ben Durant owns Transitions Real Estate a Vermont firm that specializes in helping seniors find the right housing. He says even before COVID, finding small, energy-efficient, single-story homes in Vermont was tough because of the state's aging housing stock and strict development laws. And new homes that are being built, he says, tend to be two-story colonials because their smaller foundations and roofs are less costly to build compared to more sprawling one-level designs. When single-level homes do come on the market, Durant says they sell fast and often for well above the asking price, which makes it harder for older buyers on a fixed income. And, oh, by the way, if they want to move into senior care, they can't do that either because there's two-year-long waiting lists to get into something. So they're terrified because they have no really good place to go. This isn't a Vermont issue. This is a U.S. issue. 
Rodney Harrell is a housing analyst with AARP. He says in a little more than a decade, there will be more Americans over age 65 than under 18, and the housing options they'll need are not available. And I think in a few years, it'll be at a point where we just can't ignore it. The challenge will be so high that it will be in every neighborhood, every community, that people will see these kind of shortcomings in their housing stock. Beth Mace agrees. She's chief economist at the National Investment Center for Seniors Housing and Care. She says higher interest rates and rising construction costs are one problem. Worker shortages across the board are another. But she says developers are noticing the need of aging consumers. So are states. California and Vermont have adjusted zoning laws to make it easier to build accessory dwellings, like in-law apartments over a garage. In the meantime, May says homeowners unable to downsize may be able to take advantage of an extra bedroom by renting it out to a younger person who can help around the house. I think you're going to see more intergenerational housing. I think you're going to see more Golden Girls type housing where a group of women or men, for that matter, get together and house with each other and take care of each other. Mason and Harrell say the good news is local communities and state leaders are beginning to talk about this subject. But with baby boomers nearing 80, they say action is needed fast. For NPR News, I'm Nina Keck in Chittenden, Vermont. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on All Things Considered, a Massachusetts elementary school welcomes dogs that can sniff out cases of COVID. Get your monthly gift to WBUR doubled for one year, but you have to give by midnight tonight. Help us meet our fundraising goal without our having to interrupt our programs. Please make your contribution right now at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Look for clear skies tonight, lows about 60. Tomorrow, bring back the sunshine, highs holding about the mid-70s. If you missed out on the big bright moon last night, take a look tonight. The June full moon is its closest distance to Earth in its orbit, making it a supermoon. Optimal viewing time is during moonrise and moonset. That's at 9.09 tonight and 4.50 a.m. tomorrow. The June full moon is called the strawberry moon, as tis the strawberry season. It's 5.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Worcester Cultural Coalition. The Hanover Theater presents the Broadway musical The Band's Visit, June 16th to 19th. More at worcesterculture.org. And Cityside Subaru in Belmont with the all-new 2022 Subaru Outback Wilderness Edition. It's summer of love at citysidesubaru.com. We have a breach of the Capitol! Congress's January 6th Select Committee is broadcasting its hearings directly to Americans. President Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. But with partisan gaps widening and fewer people saying Trump is responsible for the attack on Congress, can the hearings break through with the American people? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Ari Shapiro. For many people, the school year is finally wrapping up, and what a year it's been navigating the dips and surges of the COVID-19 pandemic. NPR's Ari Daniel brings us the story of one community that helped keep its classrooms open by trying a unique approach with dogs. Two police cruisers are parked outside of Freetown Elementary School in southeastern Massachusetts, and they're bouncing feverishly on their shocks. You might think I had like a, um, an elephant in the back or something, you know what I mean? But it's a 56-pound lab. Captain Paul Douglas runs Bristol County's canine unit. He slips a harness onto Hunter, a not-quite-two-year-old black lab. She rockets out of the cruiser. Hi, Hunter. Whoa, hi, hi. Most of the canine unit sniffs out firearms or narcotics, but Hunter here only has nose for COVID. The principal, Michael Ward, escorts us into the building. He says the virus has turned this year into a roller coaster in terms of student attendance. You can't educate an empty chair, right? So you want kids in school all the time. He's relied on masking and testing and also Hunter. She's part of a program that's training dogs to detect COVID on surfaces in schools like this one. And although the risk of getting infected with COVID by touching a surface is low, it's not zero. We could count on a, a dog coming on in and it gives another layer of sense of relief for staff, for students, for myself, and, and obviously the community at large. Across the district, during peak COVID, Hunter and another canine, Duke, were routinely alerting to the virus. We arrive at a first grade classroom. You can say hello to the dog, but first let's have the dog do its job, okay? Hunter sweeps the room, quickly sniffing the garbage can, book bags, and desks. You're just walking around the classroom? Yep. So if the dog indicates on COVID, whether it's on a surface, whether it's on a backpack, whether it's on a jacket, a dog will sit. So then what we'll do is we'll tell the administration of the school and they'll spray it down. The seeds of this program were planted two decades ago. That's when a beetle, likely a stowaway aboard a ship out of Asia, arrived near Savannah, Georgia. And that stowaway had a stowaway, a fungus. It led to over 500 million wild trees destroyed, as well as one-third of the avocado industry wiped out here in South Florida. Julian Mendel is a forensic biologist at Florida International University. As a grad student, he pondered how to detect the fungus before the trees got sick. It's the perfect task, he thought, for canines. So we've utilized canine science for ages to do the detection of many things, such as missing people, drugs, or explosives and medical applications, sniffing out certain cancers or imminent seizures. For Mendel, training them to detect the fungus was a logical next scent, and it worked. Some farmers even adopted the technique to know where to apply fungicide to their trees. Then, in early 2020, COVID came ashore. We immediately knew that we could take that approach to get into the canines to detect this particular human disease. And help prevent the spread. He and his colleague, forensic microbiologist Dieta Mills, gathered masks used by patients with COVID to train the dogs. All of the immune responses to fight off this virus combines to make a unique scent that we see as people breathe out that we can capture on the masks. 
After a month of training, the dogs were detecting COVID more than 96% of the time. Other research groups in France and Finland have made similar findings using sweat and skin samples. Julian Mendel. Our goal is this approach can be available to any agency or entity that wants to deploy canines. The dogs in Florida went on to screen American Airlines employees. They helped reopen the Miami Wine and Food Festival. When the sheriff of Bristol County in southeastern Massachusetts caught wind of the dog's success, he decided to bring the program to his canine unit. And the superintendent leapt at the opportunity to screen the county's schools starting last September, including Freetown Elementary. No Back in the classroom, Hunter's just finished her inspection. This room's clear. She didn't alert to any presence of COVID. And now we're allowing the kids to say hello to Hunter. Go ahead, you can pet her. Not a bad trade. Peace of mind for a scratch behind the ears. Ari Daniel, NPR News. BTS, one of the biggest pop bands in the world, is taking a break. They say it's not forever, but the K-pop superstars announced today they're ready to pursue solo projects. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has more. With their good looks, charm, and dazzling dance moves, BTS is a global phenomenon. Just last week, they released an anthology of some of the band's favorite songs released over the last nine years. Today, BTS posted a video of the seven members having dinner together. Over the course of more than an hour, they talk about a range of topics, touring different continents, doing interviews and other promotional events. They talk about hitting a rough patch. BTS member RM says they're exhausted and finding it difficult to concentrate on writing new songs. There's no time to think of the messages to say, he says, so they plan to take time for other projects. They talk about their fans, known as the ARMY. They want to live up to their expectations and don't want to disappoint them. And there are a lot of them. The video to the song Butter Alone has been viewed more than 770 million times. This isn't the first time BTS has taken a break. In 2019, the band's record label issued a statement saying the band was taking a hiatus to recharge and prepare to present themselves anew. But this time around, the artists don't seem to be in sync with the company that represents them. In a statement, the company says BTS is, quote, not on hiatus, but will take time to explore some solo projects at this time and remain active in various different formats. Meantime, one of the new songs on the album released last week is about BTS taking the past difficulties and challenges they faced in stride, and how your best moment is yet to come. The song is at the top of Billboard's Hot Trending Songs chart. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2022 Subaru Forester featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive info sent online can lead to identity theft. Learn more at LifeLock.com NPR. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. This is WBUR. Clear skies tonight, down around 60. For tomorrow and Thursday, lots of sunshine. Highs only about 74 tomorrow, then 78 degrees on Thursday. Red Sox are back home at Fenway tonight for a nine-game homestand. Tonight, the Oakland A's are in town for the start of a three-game series. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems. BuildingRestorationServices.com. I'm evening host Garo Hagopian, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th riot at the Capitol will continue to hear testimony Thursday, and the Department of Justice will be watching closely. At this point, this investigation is proceeding according to facts and the law. We are not obstructed uh, from continuing our investigation in any way. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, the First Minister of Scotland says her relatively autonomous government will pursue a second referendum on full Scottish independence. And a Boston-area doctor tells us why she decided to go to a red state, Mississippi, to perform abortions, something she's been doing for five years. It started out right after the 2016 election that I felt like I needed to do more than I was doing to improve access to abortion care. We'll hear from her coming up. It's 6.01 News Headlines and the numbers from Wall Street are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden addressed inflation concerns during a speech at an AFL-CIO labor union convention in Philadelphia today. As NPR's Tamara Keith explains, he made a pitch for electing Democrats in the upcoming congressional midterm elections. Speaking to a friendly crowd, an energized Biden sought to draw contrast between his party and Republicans attempting to win control of the House and Senate. And while the job market is much improved, he acknowledged high costs for gas and food are, quote, sapping the strength of a lot of families. And he admitted that his agenda has been stymied in Congress. Problem is, Republicans in Congress are doing everything they can to stop my plans to bring down costs on ordinary families. That's why my plan is not finished and why the results aren't finished either. Though Biden hasn't been able to get total Democratic support for his legislative proposals either. 
Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell says he supports the framework on gun safety measures that was announced by a bipartisan group of senators Sunday. Lawmakers are still writing the bill, and the minority leader says he support his support hinges on the final bill, closely reflecting the proposals in the draft version. That plan includes expanded background checks for young gun buyers, broader limits on gun sales to people convicted of domestic abuse, funding for mental health and school safety programs, and incentives for states to pass so-called red flag laws. Food and Drug Administration advisors today recommended the agency authorize Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 6 through 17. More from NPR's Rob Stein. The FDA advisory committee voted in a pair of unanimous votes that the agency should authorize Moderna's vaccine for children and adolescents. Those young people are already eligible to get the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but the FDA advisors concluded that the benefits of Moderna's vaccine also outweigh the risks for this age group and could provide an alternative. Many children between the ages of 6 and 17 remain unvaccinated. The FDA does not have to follow the advisory committee recommendation, but the agency usually does. On Wednesday, the FDA advisors will consider the first vaccine for children younger than age 5. That's the last group to become eligible for vaccination. FDA scientists say the benefits of low-dose versions of the vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech appear to outweigh the risks for babies, toddlers, and other very young children. Rob Stein, NPR News. The House Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol said today it's postponing its scheduled hearing for tomorrow. The session was to have featured Trump-era Justice Department officials, including former Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, as well as former top officials Richard Donahue and Stephen Engel. No reason was given for the postponement. The Dow was down today 151 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has thrown out a ballot question that would have asked voters in November to keep rideshare drivers classified as independent contractors. The question also would have limited companies, including Uber and Lyft, from some legal liability for accidents and injuries. The court ruled the question is unconstitutional because it asks voters to consider more than one policy matter. Some drivers want rideshare companies to consider them employees. Ihab Halali of Revere says right now companies can make dramatic changes to working conditions without notice. We want them to respect us. We, we want to protect. We want them to be protected as a driver. So respect, protect, and well pay. We want our, mini, our wages to go up, not down. Several app-based rideshare companies back the ballot measure. Supporters say drivers will maintain greater flexibility in the hours they work if they're classified as independent contractors. Several Massachusetts communities could lose part-time and volunteer police officers over new regulations. That's according to a statewide group representing them. Volunteer auxiliary officers will have to undergo at least an additional 200 hours of training as part of new regulations from a 2020 statewide policing reform law. Mark Spiegel with the Massachusetts Volunteer Law Enforcement Officers Association says many classes are scheduled when volunteers are at their day jobs. At a time period when Massachusetts can't attract and hire people, they're taking people who are willing to help out in their communities and they're, they're making it so they can't continue. It's a travesty, it really is. The head of the state's Municipal Police Training Committee says the goal of the change is to implement uniform standards for all officers. A search is underway for a missing three-year-old in Lowell. Police believe the boy, identified as Harry, wandered away from a babysitter's home in the Pawtucketville section of the city this morning. The neighborhood borders an 11-acre state forest on one side, the Merrimack River on the other. 
A state police dive team has been searching ponds and wetlands in the area. Aircraft and crews on the ground are also searching for the boy. About 150 officers are involved in the search. And the number of people hospitalized with COVID-19 in Massachusetts is falling. The latest state data show there are 550 patients in the hospital with the virus. That's about 200 fewer than one month ago and just a fraction of the number during the winter Omicron surge. In the forecast, a beautiful moonlit night tonight, down around 60. Tomorrow and Thursday, sunshine, about 74 tomorrow, 78 on Thursday. Friday could head for about 90 degrees. 77 degrees now in the Boston area at 6.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, supporting the book Pregnant Girl, a story of teen motherhood, college, and creating a better future for young families. Written by Generation Hope founder Nicole Lynn Lewis. GenerationHope.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington, where the House Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol is building a strong political case against former President Donald Trump. But Chairman Benny Thompson says he'll leave the legal case to the prosecutors. Well, I prefer that we complete our work and share that work with the Department of Justice. And they will make that call after that. Let's talk about where that Justice Department probe stands with NPR National Justice Correspondent Kerry Johnson. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. All right. The Justice Department is led by Attorney General Merrick Garland. What has he said? What's he saying lately about the former president? Merrick Garland told reporters this week he's watching these hearings closely, and so are the prosecutors leading the more than 800 criminal cases on the docket. Of course, most of those cases are against the rioters who broke into the Capitol and assaulted police officers and reporters. But federal grand juries are looking at the organizers and funders of political rallies, and they're asking questions about the fake slates of electors. That's all part of a plan to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Here's what the attorney general general says about that. We are proceeding with full urgency with respect, uh, as I've said many times before, to hold all perpetrators who are criminally responsible for January 6th accountable, regardless of their level, their position, and regardless of whether they were present at the events of January 6th. So, Kerry, it doesn't sound like he's putting any limits on who the investigation might reach. And he says they're acting with all urgency, but it's been a year and a half since the attack. What is taking so long? There's been a lot of pressure on this Justice Department about the pace of the investigation, but that seems to reflect a sort of misunderstanding about how prosecutors are thinking about it. It's the biggest and most complex investigation in DOJ history. Leaders at this department have made a choice to start at the ground level and see where the evidence goes from there. The Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco explained this idea recently at the University of Chicago. We look at and investigate the crimes in front of us, uh, and then we work our way up. We follow the facts, we follow the evidence, we follow the money, and have our investigation go out from there. And it's very important to do that in a methodical way. Monaco says prosecutors are letting the facts guide them. They're investigating conduct and not people or political viewpoints. It's impossible not to acknowledge that a prosecution of a former president would be huge. And the legal community has been debating this a lot. What are you hearing from your sources about what this would mean? 
Oh, these these congressional hearings have been must watch for a lot of my sources uh, and must watch for the Justice Department, too. We don't know exactly what evidence prosecutors have gathered or what defenses there might be for former President Trump and his inner circle at this stage. And of course, the standard for proving a criminal case in court beyond a reasonable doubt is a lot higher than presenting information to the public in a televised hearing. But former prosecutor Christy Parker says she thinks there's a real criminal case to to be made. The actions the former president and some of his close associates undertook to overturn the result of the 2020 election are also very likely to be violations of multiple federal and state laws. Christy Parker says obstruction, conspiracy, and even seditious conspiracy could be on the table here. All right. Well, before you go, what else is coming up in the January 6th investigation this week? It's going to be busy, Ari. We've got hearings at the federal courthouse later this week for both Steve Bannon and Peter Navarro. They're former Trump advisors who face criminal charges for contempt of Congress for not cooperating with the January 6th committee. And the House Select Committee has postponed tomorrow's hearing with former Trump Justice Department officials. We expect that to be rescheduled not too long from now. We're going to be watching there as they testify about uh, former President Trump and his efforts to pressure them and perhaps even replace them with a more favorable uh, member of the Justice Department in order to uh, help overturn the election in 2020. That is NPR National Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here. The first minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, has added to the political challenges facing Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister. She announced today that her relatively autonomous government in Scotland would pursue a second referendum on full Scottish independence. That's even though Johnson has repeatedly said now is not the time to discuss such a potentially significant split in a kingdom that's remained united for more than three centuries. Villa Marx has the details from London. Ever since 2014, when Scots last had the chance to choose independence and rejected it, the Scottish National Party of Nicola Sturgeon has sought support for a rerun. After retaining control of Scotland's devolved government earlier this year, Sturgeon claimed a mandate to demand a fresh vote on her country's future. And at a moment of political peril for British Prime Minister Boris Johnson down in Westminster, she made her move today. This is a UK government that has no respect for democracy. It has no regard for the rule of law either. That means if we are to uphold democracy here in Scotland, we must forge a way forward, if necessary, without a Section 30 order. A Section 30 order is the approval whereby the Parliament in London can grant temporary powers to the Parliament in Edinburgh to hold this kind of vote. Since taking office, Johnson has declined to offer this option. But these days he's got several other problems, including accusations that his government is breaching international law with its plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda and for a proposal to override parts of Britain's Brexit deal with Europe, not to mention his own criminal involvement in social gatherings at Downing Street during COVID-19 lockdowns that earned its own political label, Partygate. At the same time, Johnson's now picking a fight with Europe over Northern Ireland's trade status. His government wants to override parts of the 2019 Brexit deal with the European Union that it doesn't like. His foreign minister, Liz Truss, says the consequences of inaction would be serious. There are very real problems that we're facing in Northern Ireland. First of all, on trade, we're seeing trade diverted from east, west and north, south. The people of Northern Ireland are not able to benefit from the same tax benefits as people in Great Britain. And that is causing a feeling of inequality between the different communities of Northern Ireland. 
Sam Lowe is the director of trade policy at business consultancy Flint Global and says when it comes to Europe, UK leaders have in recent years not always acted in good faith. What's unusual here is for a country to enter willingly into an agreement and then immediately pretty much say, actually, we don't like the agreement we've just entered into. And rather than resolving that through the formal mechanisms, we will just act unilaterally to change the facts on the ground. Johnson himself disputes his government is doing anything wrong. But his political opponents in Northern Ireland say the plan to change domestic law while ignoring an international treaty is unacceptable. Michelle O'Neill heads Northern Ireland's largest political party, Sinn Féin. Today's action by Boris Johnson in Westminster is absolutely reckless. It's disgraceful. It does nothing to serve the interests of the people here. It flies in the face of an international agreement which he himself negotiated. Johnson narrowly survived a vote of no confidence last week, reinforcing his reputation as a political survivor. It's unclear if that will be enough to steer him through these current crises, some of his own making. For NPR News, I'm Villa Marks in London. My unsung hero from the team at Hidden Brain tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression. Today's story comes from the poet Joy Layden. I have had a slowly disabling illness for many years, and in the past year, it's intensified to the point that I've made a list of things that I want to do while I'm still able to do them. And on that list is recording a reading of one of my books of poetry called The Book of Anna. And uh, it was almost too much for me to find somebody, but I found a woman who said, can come out to my studio and we'll do a recording of this. And I explained about being ill and she said, okay, I will drive to you. And I explained about being on disability and she said, okay, I won't charge you for the transportation time, which was about five hours round trip. I'll just come out and we'll just do the recording. And I explained that I would need to be lying down in bed while I did this. And she said, that's okay. I will sit on the bed beside you and hold the microphone over you so that you don't have to sit up. And that's what she did. She drove out one summer day and for a total of about six hours, she sat on my bed leaning over, holding the microphone so that I could make this recording. Afterward, I learned that her father was in the process of dying and that he was the inspiration for her to extend herself in this way, that she felt like that was the way that she was going to honor his life. Her example of responding to my need and my disability and my sense that this was important for me to get done by extending herself in so many ways, including giving up some of her precious time with her father, that makes her one of my unsung heroes. Unlike many of the people featured in this series, Joy Layden actually knows the name of her unsung hero. It's Debbie Bleacher, an audio producer based in Sudbury, Massachusetts. And Layden hopes to have that audio version of the Book of Anna completed by this fall. 
My Unsung Hero is also a podcast. You can find new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. To share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and send it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, an OBGYN who travels from Boston to Jackson, Mississippi every month to perform abortions at a clinic where no local doctor will work. On Wall Street, a slide today for the Dow and the S&P. Not as bad as yesterday's, though. The Dow lost a half percent, 152 points, to close at 30,365. S&P fell for a fifth day, down 0.38 percent, to close at 37.35. The Nasdaq picked up 0.18 percent, to close at 10,828. An architectural glassmaker in the town of Easton plans to lay off dozens of workers. Solar Seal has filed a notice with the state that will cut 72 jobs by early August. The Boston Business Journal reports the cuts are in part the result of rising costs, staffing challenges, and supply chain problems. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Experience Gorilla Grove, the incredible new immersive outdoor gorilla habitat at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo. Plan your visit at franklinparkzoo.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig. Designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Your monthly gift gets doubled for a year, and you keep WBUR uninterrupted. Both happen when you give by midnight tonight. Please give now at WBUR.org. Don't forget to check out the June supermoon tonight. It rises at 9.09 and reaches a peak of about 23 degrees above the horizon. During supermoons, the moon appears especially large because of the close approach to the Earth. The supermoons come in clusters, so you get to see two more, one in July and another one in August. 81 degrees now in the Boston area. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Wicked, flying back to the Citizens Bank Opera House now through July 24th. Available at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Supreme Court is expected to announce soon its ruling in a case that could overturn Roe v. Wade, the law that legalized abortion. Such a ruling would trigger laws that ban abortions in 13 states. One of those states is Mississippi. The case before the Supreme Court is centered around the only clinic in that state that provides abortions. It's in the capital, Jackson. No Mississippi doctors work there. They say the stigma keeps them from getting hired anywhere else. And that's where doctors like Cheryl Hamlin come in. She's an obstetrician gynecologist who practices at Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge and a community women's clinics. Every month, Dr. Hamlin flies down to Jackson for a few days to perform abortions. She's been doing this for five years now. It started out really just right after the 2016 election that I felt like I needed to do more than I was doing to improve access to abortion care. 
I felt like I needed to know what was happening in Mississippi or a red state, and Mississippi was the one I went to. Um, and I think that, you know, the longer I'm there, the more, you know, I see the need, and obviously things have gotten worse. There have been multiple laws passed since I've been working there. Most of them have been overturned, and now we've got this one. And who pays for your travel there? The clinic does pay for it. The clinic itself yeah, yeah. to continue providing the service. And what is it like when you get there? Do you have to go in undercover? Are there protesters outside? There are protesters outside the clinic, for sure. I've never felt threatened, so it's not like I'm sneaking in, but I definitely go in the back door, not the front door. And, you know, they generally say horrible things to me, but worse than that is they say really horrible things to the women walking into the clinic. The women who who go there, can you tell us about them? You know, it's the whole range that you would expect. I mean, I think that Mississippi and Jackson in particular has a higher percentage of African Americans than any other state, and that's definitely reflected in the clientele. Um, I would say most of the women probably average on the poorer side, but that doesn't mean we don't get professionals. We certainly do get nurses, doctors, lawyers, teachers, young, you know, old, no kids, lots of kids. I mean, we get the whole range. If you look back on the women that you have provided services for, are there any that stay with you, any stories that stay with you? Gosh, there's so many. You know, I think one of the themes, perhaps, is a religious one, since that's what people are claiming is the reason we should ban abortions and, you know, people saying, oh, they need to find Jesus or you need to find Jesus. I mean, a lot of the women there, they found Jesus. It's not a lack of religion. And I've had things from like, I just want my baby to go meet Jesus, you know, right now rather than suffering through the life I have to offer him. Or in one case, we were sort of negotiating how we were going to get her in. And when I came back and said, all right, all right, we can get you in tomorrow. And she's like, oh, thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray that he would speak in your ear and help me. Mm. You know, so that's their religion. And who are the other people to place their religious, you know, judgment on them? So you said one of your motivations in going to Mississippi was to find out what things were like in a red state, to try and understand what people who think in a different way, possibly, what their views are. So let me ask you that in regards to people who you are serving, you're providing abortions for, and then people who don't want abortion to be legal, who are on the other side. Maybe you've talked to them, maybe you haven't. Tell us first about your patients. You know, one of the things that struck me early on was, you know, comparing it to Massachusetts was the difference in, you know, healthcare options in general. Mississippi has one of the highest uninsured rates and Massachusetts having one of the lowest ones. So the the difference was fairly stark that women actually didn't get birth control because they couldn't afford it, not so much because it wasn't accessible. You know, and a lot of them haven't really seen a doctor other than, you know, I'm like the first doctor they've seen in a while. Hmm. Um, And so you know, I do talk to them about their blood pressure. You know, your, your blood pressure is a lot higher than it should be. You know, have you seen somebody for that? Or, you know, they'll tell me about, you know, just some advice they've been given that just seems a little backwards to me. And what I'll try thinking? to talk with them through that. Can I ask you what? 
several women have said that they requested a tubal ligation or something permanent and were told no, that they're too young, they don't have enough kids. And what's behind that? I mean, that's that's not a matter of lack of insurance. What do you think is, is going on there? I don't know if I know. It could either be a lack of taking the time to understand what the woman really needs, which we all know contributes to some of the healthcare disparities, you know, that poor and women of color often aren't listened to as well. I think I have no doubt that's part of it. Um, Some of it just may be that they're so desperate for doctors that, you know, they may not have a lot of time for education or maybe they're not the most well-trained. And what about the people who you would consider real red staters, the people who you're kind of trying to get your head around? Have you spoken with anyone who can kind of help you understand where they're coming from? Well, what's interesting to me, actually, is that I haven't always been shy in saying what I've been there for, and I'm surprised about the amount of support I get. The worst has been neutral, like, eh, you know, that's fine, but uh, I think women abuse it or whatever. I mean, that was like the worst comment I've gotten. But I've gotten some like, wow, good for you. You know, I'm, you know, I'm so glad that you do that, you know, more than you would expect, I guess. Um, so the only really outspoken people really are the protesters in front of the building. And when I started going, I, I did try to engage with them, but you, you really can't. Um, I've talked to them about, well, why doesn't Mississippi expand Medicaid? You know, more women would be have insurance and use birth control and, you know, maybe feel more comfortable continuing a pregnancy if they if they weren't worried about insurance and like, well, that's not going to make any difference. You know, I mean, it, it, nothing I say has made a difference. If you can't go back, where will your activism go then? Are you going to try to find places where these women can go if they need and want an abortion outside of Mississippi, elsewhere? Well, it's going to have to be multi multi-front fronts. Um, the owner and staff at Jackson Women's Health are opening a clinic in New Mexico, and I'm working on my New Mexico license, and it's right on the border of Texas, so it will be convenient to Texas. Um, you know, I'm hoping that my connections here um, will help whatever women that this would be the easier step that they can come here. You know, it's going to be some fundraising and kind of creative how to get people where they need to be, you know, to the extent that it's legal for both me and the woman wanting it, um, getting pills to them or, you know, whatever it takes. It's going to take a lot of creativity and multiple fronts. And then, you know, the real answer is we need the political will to change things. You know, we haven't succeeded until that happens. Dr. Cheryl Hamlin, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Cheryl Hamlin is an obstetrician-gynecologist based in the Boston area who's been providing abortions in Jackson, Mississippi every month since 2017. This is WBUR. If we're your news lifeline, give monthly and support. You get your support doubled by some members of our Morrow Society. That happens only until midnight tonight at WBUR.org. Looks like a nice evening, a clear night tonight. Lows about 60 for tomorrow. Sunshine's back. High is holding to the mid-70s. Thursday, mostly sunny, up around 78 degrees. Could make it to 90 on Friday. This is WBUR at 630 and Marketplace is next.
WBUR supporters include Building Restoration Services, hiring architects, engineers, and estimators to solve complex building envelope problems, buildingrestorationservices.com, and Empire Loan with eight New England locations, recognizing Boston Explorers, whose mission provides children ages 7 to 15 the opportunity to explore Boston in an electronic-free setting and learn lifelong skills, committed to ensuring all children have full and equal access to Boston, bostonexplorers.org.